0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria,
1: Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au.
0: Okay, so uh, let us start uh, this evening. So first question here. Uh, dear Ajahn, we have learned that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional uh, and we know about the two arrows that the buddha taught about uh, but if someone has chronic pain a disability uh, how can we uh, how can one constantly fight it or accept it uh, thank you um, it is h- hard when you have a, a cons- chronic pain yeah it is uh, not s- it is it difficult to deal with but uh, uh, there, you know, one of them is to try to. One of the ways is to try to manage the pain, uh, and if you there is some painkillers that you can use, it's okay to use painkillers. Uh, you don't have to kind of bear it all the time. Uh, so if there's some kind of medicine that helps you out, uh, uh, then use it. And uh, often you can use it when you are on meditation retreats. Yeah, unless it uh, kind of makes your mind very blurry or very uh, dull or whatever. Uh, you can use it when you do meditation just to support your meditation practice. Uh, and if you don't want to use it too much, then you can maybe not use it in ordinary life, for example. These things often become more intense when you meditate because there's nothing else to watch. So the pain kind of, there's no distractions. Uh, the pain can become very uh, difficult. Uh, uh, so then it might be useful to use this. Uh. Other thing you can do is to. Uh, uh, this is kind of the standard way, is to try to accept the pain, yeah, and kind of not to uh, try to avoid all that craving and desire to get rid of it. Uh, this is not easy to do, uh, but uh, if you can go down that track, you find actually the pain can become bearable. If you accept it, uh, then mindfulness can arise, uh, and then you can be able to just watch the breath, and just kind of leave the pain to one side. Uh, yeah, It is possible to do that, uh, but... Uh, it really depends on the strength of your mental qualities and all of these kind of things, uh, whether you can do it or not, uh, but that is kind of the ideal way, yeah. just to know that the pain is unavoidable, uh, and ultimately if it is unavoidable, okay, you have to accept it, there's, not, there's no kind of two ways about it, you're just going to have to go with it somehow, uh, and then bang, you make that breakthrough and then when you when that, that happens uh, often the pain will subside as a consequence. Uh, someone just told me the other day that they have this precise problem uh, and that they were able to accept it and then when they accept it the pain just decreased a lot uh, and straight away they felt very much more peaceful and at ease with the whole thing. Here. So it can be done, uh, Yeah, this uh, letting go uh, of the craving and desire to get rid of it. Uh. So, uh, but there's nothing wrong with using medicines, yeah, if you find something that can reduce it, uh, often that is the kind of a good start, uh, because um, uh, that's what medicines are for, it's your good karma, that you have good medicines, uh, that's, uh, you know, one nice way of thinking about it. Uh. But it's not easy, yeah, and it certainly is a, is a problem, uh, and um, so you just have to kind of do your, do your best and see what happens. Okay can you please uh, give uh, an example of a scallywag uh, and how to how to cop- cope with them uh. an exa- example of a scallywag uh. Uh. <laughs> scallywags are like endearing people the yeah? scallywag is a term of endearment uh. so when i use the use the term scallywag is kind of these are these, these are this is a nice term yeah this is kind of these are the people you invite into your life the scallywags uh. So um <laughs> this is uh uh I'm not sure exactly what you mean by this uh, but uh if you mean uh, you know someone who is difficult, uh, yeah, in your life and how to deal cope with people who are difficult, uh, I've in a sense already talked about that quite a bit. Uh, there's lots of difficult people in in life uh, and the only way to deal with them really again is this idea that uh, to know that this is the way people are uh, and not to react to it and have a sense of compassion yeah if there are uh, people with bad qualities and whatever. Having compassion is always very powerful uh, because these people often suffer, they're causing trouble for themselves and others uh, and then uh, uh, compassion is often the right way of dealing with it uh. yeah so that's what uh, that's if they are really. That's what you know, really bad people—not just scallywags, but bad, bad, bad. Yeah, that's what you—that's what you do. Huh? But if they are scallywags, a scallywag is kind of someone who is a bit mis- mischievous. Yeah, it's not really—it's uh, not meant as a kind of, uh, in, you know, <laughs> in a bad way. Yeah. It's a term that Ajahn Brahm uses when he, you know, when he sees what the monks do in the monastery, he calls us a bunch of scallywags. That's kind of a, that a, we are scallywags. So this, is, you know, so that's uh, so I'm—I'm I'm probably in the, I'm probably a good example of a scallywag. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you how do you cope with me well that's how you cope with scallywags eh? okay Okay. hello Ajahn. thank you for your wisdom when one is in an environment where one is constantly at the receiving end i.e difficult boss nasty spouse (laughs) etc And one is not in a position to quit the job or to divorce. Uh, we can have compassion for those difficult people at times, but at other times it is very difficult to have empathy for them as you are the one who always has, you're always the victim. Uh, what should one do so as to not react uh, and generate wholesome commas? Um uh, you're not in a position to have a job and divorce, so you have to be around them, you're forced to be there, and you cannot have compassion, so what do you do then, okay? <laughs> so w- one of the things is to, uh, you know, to not to to try to uh, not to have too much to do with them, to try to kind of reduce the contact is always a useful thing, yeah? If you can... And uh, one of the ways to do that is to kind of take a holiday every now and again. Uh, Yeah, Come to the BSV, go on a retreat somewhere, get some distance. Because when you get distance, you get more clarity about what is going on. Uh, Then it's easier to see them in that way, to have compassion. If they are around you all the time and they're always kind of irritating you, it becomes very difficult to have compassion because it's just too close. Uh, The irritation is just too constant and becomes very hard. Uh, so uh, make make sure you get enough time for yourself. Okay, sorry, I gotta go and do my meditation now. Have a nice excuse, yeah. If it is a, it's a spouse that is problematic, then uh, uh, you know you have to just tell them, okay, I need I need more time alone, uh, yeah. And they will hopefully they will understand that and they will accept that. Uh, a boss at work, uh, I don't know. You you know again, you have to find some ways of not having too much contact. I suppose, uh, uh, whatever, however you can do that. Uh, but in the end, you have to come back to these ideas of pers- perception, yeah, of understanding that difficult people, they are their own worst enemies. Uh. So you have to see them, try to see them that way. Uh. It is true, you, may b- it, you cannot do it all the time, uh, but you can incline more and more in that uh, direction. Uh. That is really the, the trick here that you really have to come back to. So uh, over time, it will get better and better and better. Yeah, and eventually you will be able to see them properly that way. Yeah? The other thing is that you have to ask yourself. You say you're not in a position to divorce or, um, you know, quit your job, but maybe you are. Maybe you, maybe you kind of feel trapped, but maybe sometimes you have to take uh, a leap if things are too difficult. Uh, sometimes you have to ask yourself uh, whether you you know whether that might be a better option for you anyway in the long run sometimes we think we can't do things uh, but uh, actually it's surprising what you can do speak with some good friends uh, ask some other people who know your situation better uh, uh, what they would do in that situation uh, talk it over with somebody you trust uh, you know and uh, see if you can find some kind of uh, better way of dealing with this thing go to a counselor Go with your spouse to a counselor, yet said say to them that it's just getting too difficult. Uh, Let's see if we can see a counselor together. Uh, And often counselors can be very useful because they often uh, you know will have that neutral position, Uh, and then you will maybe be able to find out whether there's something you can do better, Uh, or your spouse will be able to hear what they can do better. Uh, All of these things are possibilities. Uh, So um yeah, if you keep on like, just keep on looking for solutions, then the solutions will eventually arrive. Dear Adan, sometimes we may find it hard to balance helping in a skillful way, and instead go to M&Ms. M and M's. M and M's, okay, that's chocolate, is that right? <laughs> uh, fix it mode, resulting in unhealthy. C- uh, no, go to uh, okay. Okay, I'm not sure, okay. Unhealthy codependency, how do we recognize this do-gooding in ourselves? Uh, okay, yeah. Um, so you end up with a kind of unhealthy codependency instead of actually helping and being doing things with kindness. Uh, okay, um so how do you recognize that well uh, you just um you start somewhere you just gradually uh, uh, find out i mean the fact that you are aware that there is something unhealthy going on means that you already have some insight uh, yeah so you um try to kind of minimize the negative of these things you try to when you do an act of kindness you try to look at your motivation more clearly and you act more when there is that pure intention there and if you feel that it is coming from some kind of unwholesome codependency or whatever then maybe you'd kind of you know you withdraw a little bit more you don't do it at times when you know it's coming from the wrong place and it doesn't really work out Uh, Yeah, it's all about just looking at your motivation uh, and uh, applying uh, the the right action when you know the motivation is right. uh, And if the motivation is dubious, uh, then to to not do it at those times. uh, Yeah, so look at, that's really all it comes down to. The fact that you have insight into this already means that you are on the right track. You're heading in the right direction. uh, So... um, just keep on looking in that way uh, and keep on trying to uh, you know let go of the bad things and do do things in the right way and as you do that it will kind of hopefully you come out of the problem but again sometimes these things you need something more than the dhamma to resolve difficult situations like that and and sometimes it is not a bad idea to go to someone who can be like act like a kind of counselor to you yeah someone who can kind of talk to you and find out because they are neutral uh, and in your in a relationship it is very it's almost impossible to be neutral you don't really know sometimes you know what is actually happening because you're just too close to the action uh, and then having a third party that you can trust can be very useful to see clearly what is going on uh, so it's not uh, it's not kind of uh, you know embarrassing or anything like that to have to go to a council sometimes it's actually a, a very wise thing to do to uh, emerge from uh, uh, difficulties of that, of that kind of uh, that sort. Uh. So sometimes, if you rely too much on the dhamma, it um, it may not be the best way, uh, yeah, because you may have a blind spot or something, uh, and you may try to apply things you don't really know what you're doing, uh, and then uh, uh, you know, coming to some some using some third party can be very helpful. Uh, I don't know if there's anyone here in the BSV who kind of helps with these kind of things. Sometimes Buddhist uh, organizations they have kind of uh, know they have um, services they provide for people huh? but uh, anyway wherever you um, wherever you can find some help to can can also be a useful thing to do huh? but if you are wise uh, you may also be able to kind of gradually extract yourself from that kind of situation by by being wise about how you how you help others uh. okay Ajahn, you mentioned the Buddha said uh, consciousness awareness is Dukkha and the highest state of liberation is when there is no consciousness. Uh, so how does one detach from consciousness? Uh, does that mean you can't be aware when you have reached liberation? Uh, um, how you detach from consciousness, that is what I was just uh, describing the other day. Yeah, I remember the other day I was talking about the, uh, how you contemplate the five uh, khandhas uh, Gradually, you go through the process of meditation, you watch your breath, uh, and uh, things gradually disappear. Uh, And part of the things that disappear as you go very deep through that meditation process, gradually, or even the conscious experience, uh, is kind of, you're chipping away at it. It becomes less and less as you go deeper and deeper into your meditation practice. Uh, And that is how you become aware that conscious experience is uh, dukkha, because the less conscious experience you have, uh, the better it is. Uh, yeah. The less that is going on, uh, the, more, the, the more happy you are. Yeah. Get rid of uh, the five senses, uh, the five sense-consciousnesses of sight, hearing, all you're left with is the mind. When you go into very deep state of samadhi, you feel much better. So you know it's anicca because it's gone, you know it's dukkha because it feels better, and you know it's anatta because you can't access those consciousnesses uh, when it gets very deep. Uh, so that's how you know it's Dukkha. It's basically through the process of meditation, looking back upon the process, looking back upon things disappearing, here, and then you start to see what is going on now. So that's how detachment comes gradually until eventually you have the big insights when you become a, a stream-enter. Yeah? So... Um, Yeah. Does it mean that you can't be aware when you reach liberation? Well, liberation means becoming an arahant. An arahant just means that you don't have any craving or attachment to these things. You still have awareness, uh, but the attachment and the craving is gone. Uh, yeah, and that is the uh, point of this. Uh, we're talking about before this two arrows uh, or two darts, uh, and the main, the most problematic dart is the dart of the mind, where the mind is attaching and craving, and uh, you suffer. First of all, through the body, or they suffer through, uh, you know, through the senses, and then the second one is the mind also kind of latching onto that and cr- and adding to the suffering by complaining or by taking it as a uh, as an aspect of you and, and kind of making it a self thing out of it and all of this, uh, making a view out of it or or whatever, and that is be- when it becomes more problematic. Yeah. But if the mind just lets go all the time and just sees it as a as a bad feeling without any kind of reaction to it uh, then the main part of the problem is gone uh. it's still going to be unpleasant uh, but it's going to be far less so if you do it that way here uh. so you still have awareness uh, yeah but your you, you have your attitude to it uh, is completely changed uh, so it's not a problem anymore here uh. okay 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 um uh, why does delusion and samsara exist? <laughs> why can't all beings be liberated as a natural state of being without having to go through dukkha and samsara? It's unfair. Beings are not liberated. It's, it's bad. It is, it's really unfair, isn't it? Uh, why can't it be this way? We want it to be this way. We want. We want. We want this way. We want. To, we crave for it to be this way. We don't want it to be any other way. Be careful of that because if you crave for it to be that way but it isn't that way uh, that is exactly how you create dukkha for yourself uh, we crave for the world to be different from what it actually is uh, then you are really setting up a big time dukkha since the end uh, uh, since in the end it doesn't matter uh, and we we are w- and we are part of the same spirit uh, or non-self uh. um so why does delusion and samsara exist? Yeah, Well, th- this is kind of the sort of thing that the Buddha doesn't really give any answers to. Why? Because it's kind of irrelevant. Why it exists is, uh, is kind of not really part of the equation. Well, one reason why it exists is because of craving. Yeah, Because craving renews existence. So the reason why you are here, the reason why you are deluded, is because you were deluded in the past. <laughs> so it is... Uh, uh, it Delusion is this process that reinvents itself. It perpetuates itself from one existence to another one. Uh, Delusion creates more delusion. Delusion creates craving. Craving creates craving. Uh, So the reason why you are here, why you exist, uh, why samsara exists, is because of past craving. Uh, But the point is, there is no first cause. uh, Like we saw earlier on in this retreat, there is no initial point. uh, So you can't really point to any beginning of all of this. Uh, This is how the Buddha... So there's just delusion in the past, going back indefinitely, craving before craving. yeah. That is really the only answer to this question, why it exists. Uh, and there is no first point. Uh. And actually, it is very, to me, it is a very satisfactory way of thinking about the world. Because uh, we often we want to find first points. Uh, we want there to be a beginning of everything. Uh, but really, it doesn't make much sense to have a beginning here. Uh because how can there be a beginning so- something must have created and made that beginning yeah because how can some- how can something come out of nothing yeah. that is the problem with having a beginning something coming out of nothing okay so maybe one religion said well it's god created everything yeah but that's also not really satisfactory because if god has always been there you might as well have had the universe always been there it's it's the same thing it's the same idea doesn't doesn't really answer anything yeah so the problem remains the same so, so, to me, it is a much more satisfactory conc- uh, conclusion to say, well, actually, it is all just cause and effect, and you cannot really find an initial point. Uh. You cannot even say it goes on forever, because that also you cannot see, uh. but you cannot find a first point. Uh. It is just cause and effect going backwards, uh, potentially inde- indefinitely. Uh. And that is, uh, to me, it's actually quite a satisfactory way of looking at the world. Uh. So for that reason, you cannot say anything about uh, delusion and samsara. Why it exists ultimately, you cannot answer that question. The Buddha doesn't reply to it. Why can't all beings be liberated as a natural state of being without having to go through dukkha and samsara? Again, you know, um, this is kind of the wrong end of the stick from the Buddha's point of view because the, we have a problem and the question is how do we resolve that problem yeah if you crave for things to be different from what they are uh, all you are really doing is creating even more suffering for yourself uh. you're craving a reality that doesn't exist uh, and that of course is going to be very problematic uh. this is the point about buddhism is to try to see things according to reality uh, and try not and try to accept that reality and then deal with it to the best of your ability uh. so um Uh, The reality is that there is suffering, uh, and this is the reality that the Buddha starts out with. uh, And then he asks, is there a solution to the problem? Uh, And he finds that there is a solution, and that is really the good news. And then you start to try to find an end to the problem by using the Buddha's solution. uh. Yeah. So this is kind of, in in one sense, it is a a fairly kind of, the Buddhist doctrine is quite, uh, challenging, uh, but on the other hand, it's also optimistic that there actually is a solution to the problem. You're not stuck with these things. Uh, yeah, If you gradually start to deal with these things, eventually you will find, find a solution. Uh, that is what really matters. Uh. Since in the end it doesn't matter and we're part of the same spirit or non-self, uh, uh, um, in the, i'm not sure about that one it in the end it doesn't matter what what i'm not sure what you mean by that does what what doesn't matter in the end well uh, what matters is suffering yeah you want to get out of suffering so you deal with that uh. and that's really so in that matters yeah suffering matters happiness matters uh. so you try to deal with those things uh. Uh, we are all part of the same spirit, are we? Uh, uh, not sure that, if that's really the Buddhist kind of view of things, uh, that we're part of the same spirit. The Buddhist view is more like uh, you just end suffering. Yeah, You don't uh, think of things in terms of being the same spirit. Uh, that's more like a uh, perhaps a, uh, a Hindu view, yeah? a Dvaita Vedanta, non-duality view, something like that. Uh, it's not really a Buddhist way of looking at things. Uh. okay so we'll go on to the next one if you're not happy with any of these answers and please feel free to uh, uh, try again tomorrow huh? yeah and i will try try my best to see if i can improve on last night's uh, the previous uh, answer huh? dear Ajahn, are there any other 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 meditation techniques that we need to do after after anapanasati here huh? relaxation then non-directional mindfulness to gradual uh, directional mindfulness of breath to anapanasati is there anything after uh, Um you can take this is the thing anapanasati can take you all the way to awakening says the buddha yeah so you can te- use that technique all the way to awakening i haven't looked at the anapanasati sutta this time maybe i should have done that maybe we should look at that every time because it's a very nice sutta and it gives you the instruction on how to use mindfulness of breathing all the way to the end of the path so the humble breath is pretty powerful yeah this breath that is always there it seems like such an ordinary thing it's very unmystical and ordinary which is one of the nice things about using the breath as your meditation it's a very natural process so the point is that you use your breath and if you are successful in the breath meditation, it will take you through a large number of stages. Uh, yeah, This is really what it is about. So there comes something after, if you like, but it's really more of the breath. But the breath is uh, looked at from different kind of pr- perse- uh, uh, perspectives. Uh. So first of all, if you get the me- breath meditation right, first of all, you tend to calm down. Uh, yeah. You become more peaceful then you see more of the breath it's like your mindfulness expands you see the whole breath yeah and then it comes down more and as you keep on mindfulness expanding as you keep on seeing more of the breath there comes a point when you start to feel pleasure you start to feel uh, pamudja piti sukha all of these beautiful feelings why is that? The reason is because you become very peaceful, uh, and the defilements are starting to fade away. This is what happens when you become peaceful. You're no longer feeding the defilements of the mind by thinking in the wrong way. Uh, and when you, when you reach a state of natural purity, it is natural for bliss and happiness to start to arise. Uh, yeah, and then you are with the breath, and it becomes very beautiful at this point. Uh, very attractive. It's almost as if you, you now you really want to be with the breath because it's so nice. Uh, so then you carry on, yeah. the bliss starts to arise, uh, and the bliss becomes more and more refined, uh, the peace becomes even greater. Uh. These are the two characteristics of good meditation experiences. Uh. The peace becoming more and more profound, uh. the joy and happiness also becoming deeper and deeper as you go along. Uh. These are the two ways that you know that you're heading in the right direction in your meditation. Yeah, The amount of peace you have, and the amount of uh, bliss or happiness that you have. Uh. And uh, the breath is always there. So, uh, sometimes the bliss becomes so strong that even the breath kind of disappears a bit in the background. But the breath is always like the anchor that you come back to. Huh? yeah. And then you take it even further and there comes a point when you start to let go of the body even more. Huh? Yeah, the... The senses start to really fade away, uh, and you're left just with the mind. And that mind image is often what they call it like it's like a bright light sometimes that you can see in the mind's eye, uh, often called a nimitta. But a nimitta is not really a, it's not, that's not what it's called in the sutta. Sutta is called something like an obasa, like a splendor or, you know, something like that. uh. So, and then it becomes. At this point it becomes incredibly incredibly blissful and still yeah and then you take that too deeper and deeper and deeper more and more bliss more and more stillness that's really the critical thing more bliss and more stillness as you move through this process the breath may still be there in the in the background now becoming very weak Uh, the main focus point now becomes that uh, um, uh, that nimitta that you have that light you have yeah and eventually you take that all the way into deep samadhi states like the jhanas uh, This is where you're heading to. And the breath does all of that. uh, Yeah, All of that can be done with the breath. uh. And then when you come out of this very deep meditation, depending on how deep it is, uh, then you come to the things I was talking about the other day. When you review your experience, uh, you look at the things that have faded away. Everything in your experience is the five khandas. so everything that you then review is actually the five khandas. Uh. You see how they gradually fade away. Uh. You see their impermanence, first of all, how they fade away, how they cease. Yeah. And then uh, ultimately, through seeing that enough, then you have this reaction called patinisaga, which is like giving these things up completely, and then craving ends as a consequence. Uh. So breath is very useful. You can take it all the way here. Uh. But it's not the only thing that you should be doing. You should be doing other things as well to support it. Uh, and the kind of typical things to do is uh, things like uh, do a bit of metta. Metta also, of course, is a daily life, but you can also try to bring it a bit into your meditation practice, uh, the loving-kindness meditation. We can do a bit of death contemplation, uh, or you can do any kind of contemplation that is has you know along Dhamma lines. Uh. But these are all things that... Uh, are powerful death contemplation is powerful remind yourself you're going to die here uh. remind yourself you don't know when it's going to be here uh. how does that affect your mind we tried to do that yesterday with the death contemplation uh, i don't know if it worked for you but if it works you should f- tr- start to feel very empty and peaceful inside uh. yeah it may not give rise to bliss necessarily but you feel very you can feel very peaceful by doing the death contemplation in the right way here uh so make make add to these things because you can't watch the breath all the time uh. as i said yesterday sometimes the meditation comes to a natural end and then you need to do something else do a bit of walking uh. just enjoy the peace and quiet do some contemplation uh. do you know whatever so you have a bit of variety in your meditation practice uh. okay 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 Dear Ajahn, we were talking in uh, m- the morning about non-self uh, as uh, a way to break the cycle of dependent origination. I thought that feeling and attabava is really eliminated only by the anagami stage. Uh, that feeling of attabava, okay, attabava, okay, at the anagami stage. So how to get rid of this illusion of self to progress further on the path? Uh, Many thanks. Well, it's it's like everything, yeah. The all of these illusions, yeah. The uh, feeling of a self and all of this, they are also gradually eliminated. It's not. It it is true that there comes a point when it kind of you have the big bang. You know, it's really kind of you see through it thoroughly, but also just through your ordinary meditation experience, you are eliminated some of that sense of self. Yeah. The. uh, Uh, the identity that we have to all of these things, uh, uh, you are actually letting go of that. Uh, And uh, why? Well, because you're becoming peaceful. And in that peaceful mind, there is less identity. A lot of the way that the identity expresses itself uh, is through the thinking and through justifying and to kind of thinking about who you are and what you are in relationship to others and all of this. When you become very peaceful, it's as if that identity is largely gone. Uh, You're just peaceful, yeah, you're nothing, just empty, empty inside, uh. and what does it feel like? It feels nice, yeah, identity is a problem, uh, yeah, you start to see that as in already in your meditation practice, uh. so it is a gradual thing, yeah? yeah, that you deepen and deepen, the deeper you go, if you enter a deep state of samadhi, there's very little identity left, uh. And this is one of the reasons why it is fairly easy at that point to become a stream-entry, uh, because you have already given up so much of your identity as part of that process. Uh, yeah, This is why you can see so much of non-self just by doing the process of samatha in the right way. You look back on the process, uh, you understand a lot of what non-self is about already. Uh, yeah, So you are giving, giving up these things uh, as strongly already just through the ordinary uh, Process of meditation, you are reducing it already. So all all along, avidya is kind of becoming less, uh, until you have given it up in the uh, to a, a large extent, uh, yeah. And then one day the mind is so peaceful that you are ready to have a big insight experience, uh, and that's when you become a stream enterer. Uh, yeah, that's when you see full non-self one thing is to reduce it and to kind of make it less another thing is to see it completely that's when you really have this big flash yeah boy now I, now i really understand uh, that's when you overturn things completely and that happens at stream entry that's what stream entry is all about seeing non-self fully uh, but uh, yes there is still the feeling left there's still conceit yeah this is called conceit uh, in the suttas uh, uh, and uh, that Concede that mana or whatever that goes with you all the way to arahantship to some extent and what that means is that uh, your habits of thinking in terms of yourself uh, will still be there to some extent all the way to become an arahant uh. but your view is correct so if someone asks you yeah you know that there is no inherent essence in you yeah but you will still sometimes be deluded by these things uh, so then you keep on practicing. But once you are a stream mentor, you don't have to worry about how to practice, uh, yeah? Once you are a stream mentor, it happens all automatically. You know the path uh, is part of who you are. You just follow that, carry on uh, on that path. Uh, and eventually, you just overcome everything uh, as, a, as a consequence. Uh. So um, that's how you you just get rid of it. So so just uh, that's how you do it, yeah? become peaceful get into a good state of samadhi al- already overcome all of this thing then reflect back on the process you have been through and eventually if you reflect back on that process and if you keep on doing that one day bang you become a stream entry sovan sotapanna yeah and then carry on after that practicing that same path more and more and then one day you're arahant oops arahant now gee arahant okay what happened <laughs> And it's like it's a bit like that, yeah. Because the path sort of happens by itself. So, so one day you just you th- kind of wonder, gee, that was that's interesting. And then you look back and you, you are very, uh, uh, you, you you are um, you are very pleased with yourself. Actually, not really pleased with yourself because are hand, yeah. So you kind of just uh, okay, now I'm happy. <laughs> okay, a few more questions to go. So, dear Ajahn, you said in the Suttas, the Buddha said, mindfulness is not enough. What are all the other steps to be liberated and awake? How do we become more mindful in meditation? Well, I, w- I said that in the, sp- the specific connection of uh, overcoming uh, ill-will. Yeah, And uh, so mindfulness, to overcome ill-will, you need to have mindfulness, but you also need to have metta. Metta is the op- way to overcome ill-will. And metta Again is not just done in meditation. It is, it is what we do throughout our daily life. how we're learning to think about people in the right way here. It's very interesting that in the sutta as actually we come to the Sutta later on, the Buddha says that to overcome bad conduct, the right way to do that is to, is to reflect in the right way here. You don't overcome bad conduct, even mental bad conduct by meditation practice. you do it by learning how to think in the right way here. Thinking about people, thinking about situations in a wise way. Wisdom power, yeah? And that is also how you can have metta towards others. Uh. So with mindfulness, you cannot overcome ill will. You have to hus- have metta. So that's what I was referring to at that point. But yes, it is certainly true that uh, uh, you need more than mindfulness not only to overcome ill will, but for everything on the path, you need that, Yeah? What are the other steps to be liberated and awake? Well, first of all, the Eightfold Path, yeah, that's the the other steps. So first of all, you need all the other things to support mindfulness. Uh, Mindfulness without support is going to be weak. So you need to have uh, support, and that support is, again, sila. Two things that support mindfulness, and you see that in many, many places in the suttas, sila and right view. Uddhukaditi and sila are the two things that you need to support mindfulness. Uh, And uh, you go to the Satipatthana Sangyuta that has all the discourses on Satipatthana practice uh, and they say specifically that you practice Satipatthana based on these two foundations, uh, sila and Uddhukaditi. Uddhukaditi means straight view or right view. Uh, If you look at the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, it begins with uh, right view and then you have the right aim or the right uh, purpose and then you have all the sila factors including right effort then you have satipatana yeah so the two things there are really just sila and right view also within the noble eightfold path uh. and if you start to look at the suit as you will see this is a recurring theme everywhere uh, yeah so always the answer is that if your meditation isn't going well enough uh, what is the reason the reason is not that you are watching the breath in the wrong way i mean the breath is it's very simple to watch the breath yeah you just watch it uh, there's no big deal you can't really watch the breath in many different ways uh. if you are ready you will know exactly how to watch the breath it will be automatic it won't be very hard uh. so if you can't do it uh, or it is difficult for you this is where you have to look sealer and right viewer yeah this is really what it's about uh. why well because uh, if you have very strong seal, if you have a very pure if you are a very, have a very pure heart, uh, you are not gonna be part of that pure purity of heart is that you are not you don't have much ill will. Uh, you have a lot of meta and compassion instead. Uh, you don't have too much desires because you understand that all those desires are just problematic, so you have those left aside. Uh, and if you don't have too much desire and ill will, it means that you're already largely in the present. Yeah, you are here, uh, you're not kind of in the future or in the past. Uh, if you have a lot of ill will and desire, your mind is going to be drawn to the future and the past. So if you th- think, look at your mind during meditation, the thinking mind is that kind of mind which is drawn to the present and the past usually. It is driven by desires, maybe not strong desires, but desires nonetheless, and maybe subtle ill will or whatever. That is why it doesn't work out. So there is there an opportunity to purify your sila more. And then the mind comes into the present moment, you feel good about yourself. It is natural to feel good about yourself if you have good morality. Then when you feel good about yourself, you're happy in the present moment. Yeah, wow, it's nice to be here. I feel good about myself. Yay, yeah. <laughs> you try not to think yay because that's another thought, but you kind of, you know what I mean. Huh? <laughs> and then you feel good about yourself and then you have mindfulness and then it happens. You're just here and then watching the breath is just automatic. You can't really avoid it anymore because you're here already. The breath is here. You are here. It happens. And mindfulness just goes on. This is how it works. This is why Sila is so important as a foundation for um, for watching the breath or for any meditation of it. You feel good about yourself, you are naturally present. Uh, if you look at how the Buddha explains meditation in so many places uh, uh, i'd mentioned this before the uh, anusati is the recollections uh, the recollections are all about how to feel happy and one of the most important recollections is the sila anusati recollection of your virtue yeah your your good qualities or caga anusati your generosity and uh, these things are all about your character and how you live and your sila and these things uh. the other aspect is right view yeah because right view means that you understand where to look for happiness uh. You understand where to avoid suffering, and the more you understand that, the more the mind will just automatically go to that. It won't be interested in the other things. Uh, This is why right view is so important. Uh, This is why right view is much more than just Believing in rebirth and kama, it is about understanding the kind of this nature of samsaric existence, uh, understanding why sensual pleasures or attachment to things in the world are inherently problematic. The more you get that, uh, the more you allow yourself to kind of follow along with the Buddha in that area, the less interest you will have in those things. Uh. But it's very gradual, yeah? it's not easy to see this, it takes time, so you have to be very patient with yourself. Uh. So these are the main things that support uh, liberation or support uh, mindfulness. But then to really be liberated, you then have to use, apply that mindfulness to your meditation object. Uh, And when you apply the mindfulness in the right way, the mind becomes very still and peaceful. And then you can enter samadhi experiences. Samadhi is the last factor of the Noble eightfold Path. And if you uh, want to reach... Any state of awakening, you're gonna need some sort of samadhi to be able to do that. Otherwise it's not gonna work. Yeah. So that is the last one. The whole eightfold path has to come together. Yeah. Then you are you are getting there. Yeah. How do we become more mindful in meditation? Okay, you got the answer. Yeah. So uh yeah, specifically try to use those anusattis, those recollections, a little bit, uh, and see if you can bring up a more peaceful mind. Yeah, use uh, use the death contemplation a little bit. All of these things, uh, and hopefully that will support that mindfulness. Okay, dear Ajahn Ramali. In keeping with the theme of the second noble truth, would Ajahn mind telling us? The story of Nasruddin looking for the keys to his house in the front yard. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Thank you doesn't capture the gratitude evoked, but thank you so much for coming to visit us in Melbourne and for your endless and uh, incomparable (laughs) wisdom. Okay. Um, (coughs) And a big thank you to Antonis Saranov for his presence here and over the last few months absolutely beyond value. Okay, well, there you are. You want to tell the story of uh, Nazarene who has lost his keys? uh. (laughs) Again? (laughs) Okay, I don't know that story. Uh, Do I? Uh, Okay, maybe I I know the one about uh, uh, eating chilies, uh, but I... uh, Yeah, that's another story Actually, I think I can ask other people
1: to tell the story because they have probably heard it so many times because I use it uh, a lot but the story is is uh, uh, as as people have heard it before Nasruddin was outside his house one evening and uh, he was looking uh, on the ground he's looking around uh, and um, his neighbor came out and said what are you looking for Nasruddin and, and Nasruddin said I'm looking for the key to my house and the neighbor said, don't worry I will help you. And so they both looked for the key uh, to the house under the streetlight. And they looked and looked and looked and couldn't find it. So the neighbour said to Nasruddin, as people generally do, do you know where you lost it? And Nasruddin, of course, being Nasruddin, said, yes, I know where I lost it. And the neighbour said, where? And he said, in the house. (laughs) And the neighbour said, why are we looking out here? And those friends said, ah, the light's so much better out here. (laughs) And the house, how I interpret it, the house is like the mind, the heart. And that's where we need to look inside ourselves, not outside under the street lamp. This is where the five senses are. This is where we're used to being. Because the light's so good, and also we're so used to it. So we tend to go to it even though we tend to know that the key is actually inside the house. It always has been. And the enjoyment, the happiness we get from the five senses actually coming from us, not from the objects. (laughs) We are actually making ourselves happy using that object as a trigger. So this is where uh, the looking for the key uh, that Nasruddin is talking about. For me, that's the meaning of it. We're looking for happiness, as Bhante calls it, in the right place. instead of the wrong place out on the street, out in the five senses. So that's my story, and a lot, I think a lot of people like that story a lot, so it's, uh, it's meaningful for me and I hope for, for others too. So there we go, Nasruddin comes into everything. <laughs> Can't escape. In fact, people say to me, Bande, you didn't mention Nasruddin this time. <laughs> no talk is complete without some Nasruddin story. There we are, thank you. There, we are. there we are.
0: Okay, so so that is... Are you happy? (laughs) (laughs) That is the story. That's true, the story. Okay. That's good. Okay, last question for tonight. And uh, uh, as follows, dear Ajahn, how should one do the daily practice on the cushion? Is it anapanasati, body scanning, choiceless awareness, manasati contemplation on death, qualities of Buddha, metta, or a mixture of all the above? Could you please do a guided meditation on the ideal way for faster penetration into ultimate reality? <laughs> 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 okay. Gee, well, that's... Okay. That, um, so you really want to get your money's worth right on this retreat. <laughs> so... The, uh, w- what you should do in your daily practice remember usually when you go on retreat that's usually when you have a chance to kind of take the meditation a bit deeper it is quite uh, hard in daily life to expect the same kind of results as you have in a retreat so do retreats every now and again to see how your you know how your general uh, progress is in your life and in daily life what i would recommend you to do if you want to do a bit of meditation use it just to relax and to enjoy and to kind of um, maybe do a bit of meta practice or whatever. The idea of meditation in daily life I think should mostly be to support you, to enable you to have good virtue throughout the day. Yeah, If you start the day in a good way, with a bit of meditation, you have a bit of metta towards people, or you f- at least you feel good about yourself because you are relaxed and you are at ease, Yeah, you don't feel stressed and all these kind of things. Stress is one of the worst things for being able to be nice. How can you be nice to others if you feel stressed? It's really hard. You get short-tempered when you are stressed and it's very difficult to be kind to people around you. So use it just to chillax. Yeah? The Buddha didn't use that word, but you know, you <laughs> use that word to, just, to, just to relax a little bit. And then you have more time for other people because you have more time for yourself. Look after yourself in this way huh? And that is really, I think, the best way to use the daily practice. Don't force yourself to sit for long periods of time. Make it into something pleasant in the daily life. Uh, if you don't feel like sitting... Don't do it. Uh, yeah, If you try for five minutes it doesn't work, okay, just get up and do something else because uh, it's supposed to be something that enhances your daily life and your feeling of uh, your ability to actually live well. Huh? So that's what I would recommend. And then uh, you can do a little bit of these things that you suggest here, Yeah, Maranasati or Metta, but ask yourself whether it adds quality to your daily life. If it adds quality, then these things are good to do. Anapanasati may be too much to ask for uh, during daily life. Yeah, it, it takes quite a while even to settle down. Uh, sometimes it can take people a day or two coming on retreat before they're able to even watch the breath because it takes you know the mind takes a long time sometimes to settle down. Uh, so sometimes just relax. Uh, sometimes do present moment awareness. Uh, do a little bit of contemplation or whatever. Sometimes don't do anything. Just put on a bit of music and you know relax. Uh, any any of these things are are okay. Yeah. So knowing the result is the most important thing. Know why you're doing things, uh, and once you know why you're doing things, then you can gauge whether the method is getting you to that result. Uh, that is kind of the critical part here. Yeah. So guided meditation on the ideal way for faster penetration into ultimate reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just watch your breath. Yeah, that's really all it is. Yeah, and then bang, ultimate reality just appears on the screen and eventually here. Yeah that's kind of the way the way to get there that's the fast way uh, it's not very fast but it's the fastest step. <laughs> okay that's all for tonight so again have a good rest and we'll see you back again tomorrow morning let's do the arahang sammasamburu together